Good morning. Have you had a good week this week? All right, let's, let's begin with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that you will join us this week, you angels and spirit will be with us, that our hearts will be drawn close to you and to each other, that we can experience the fellowship of love that is part of your kingdom, we pray in your holy name, amen. We are doing lesson number eight in our quarterly, uh, the evangelism and witnessing, and the title this week is Equipping for Evangelism and Witnessing. Would somebody read for us the key thought in the, in the opening of the lesson, please? Whatever the importance of proper training, we must first be grounded in our relationship with Jesus before we can be properly equipped to effectively witness for our faith. And as you hear that key thought, what do you think it means to be properly grounded in your relationship with Jesus? What do you think would be necessary to be properly grounded? <clears throat> to know the truth about God. Okay, so one, she says to know the truth about God. You know, when I was, I asked this question of myself, not just of you guys, and the things that popped in my mind as I asked it, I said, those that Christ healed, after he healed them, what did they go and do? Shared what he had done. The blind man, the, how about the woman at the well? After that encounter, what did she go and do? <coughs> did, did they go and begin witnessing? Yes. And what was their relationship to Christ at that point? Didn't know him that well. Yeah, but they began to witness. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be grounded. I'm not suggesting we should not be grounded in our relationship. I'm just trying to establish what it means to be grounded. What is what? It, what is it to be grounded? Uh, is it grounded in the reality that Jesus is Savior? Is it grounded in the reality that Jesus is God? Personal connection, experience. Oh, grounded in a personal experience with Jesus. So these people went out and witnessed. They had a personal experience that was real, that was powerful, that was irrefutable for them, that no one could uh, convince them that didn't happen. They had something and an experience that they were grounded in with Jesus to share. Now, they might not have known about the, uh, about the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. Revelation had been written yet. But they might not have known about the prophecies of Daniel. But did they have something about Jesus they were grounded in? Yes. Yes. What were they grounded in about Jesus, do you think? What he was teaching. What he was teaching? Yeah. What he had done for them. And what did he do? Well, most of them, he made quite a change in them. Well, see, didn't, didn't he love them, ultimately? When you, when, you, when you care for somebody who's sick, isn't that an act of love? Mm-hmm. When you are gracious to somebody who is downtrodden. Isn't that an act of love? So it seems to me that all these people, the woman at the well, did she not experience grace and kindness and compassion? As a woman, how was she treated by Christ with with love? It seems to me they experienced a person who was love. And they had a personal experience with it. It's not, hey, I heard that this guy, he, he knows how to love. They experienced it. We're talking about witnessing and being grounded. Last week after class, somebody put to my attention Philippians 1, 15 through 18. Philippians 1, 15 through 18. And we're talking about witnessing and, and being grounded in witnessing. And I thought this was quite interesting. This is Paul writing. He says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The, the latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. 
The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, some say out of profit or gain, to get ahead. Not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in change. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Think about that. Think about that. Would would this be true today? Should we rejoice when people preach Christ out of selfish ambitions in order to make profit and get ahead? We're going to start a ministry for the purpose of selling prayer cloths so that we can make millions as we promote Christ. Should we do a, how, how many would like to support that ministry? I don't see any hands. Have we heard of stories like this where people were preaching Christ for the purpose of their own personal ambitions, kingdoms, the, you know, to get, to make money? Um, are they representing Christ and his kingdom correctly? Or are they misrepresenting God and making it harder for people to come to know Christ? What would you say? When Christ went into the temple and and he drew out the money changers, what was that about? I'm going to read to you a description out of a book that I love, Desire of Ages. This is on page 157. It says that Jesus came into the temple. He took the whole, he took in the whole scene. He saw the unfair transactions. He saw the distress of the poor who thought, I love this, who thought, that without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins. It wasn't a reality. He saw the outer court of his temple converted to a place of unholy traffic. The sacred enclosure had become one of vast exchange. Christ saw that something must be done. Numerous ceremonies were enjoined upon the people without proper instruction as to their import. The worshipers offered their sacrifices without understanding. This is 157, Desire of Ages. Without understanding. Notice what's going on. They've got this... this uh, a traffic going on. They're trying to make money. He saw that uh, that the symbolic value was not understood, that uh, they were now perverted and misunderstood. Spiritual worship was disappearing. No link bound the priests and rulers with their God. No link bound the priests with the God. Hmm. He says, with, with searching glance, Christ takes in the scene before him. As he stands upon the steps of the temple court, with prophetic eye, he looks into the future and sees not only years, but centuries and ages. He sees how priests and rulers will turn the needy from their right and forbid that the gospel shall be preached to the poor. He sees how the love of God will be concealed from sinners. Who, and, and, and in this little narrative here, this author what is it being suggested as, as who's concealing the, the love of God from sinners? The priests and rulers. The religious leaders are doing this. Yeah, and the priests and rulers are, in the future, you're going to be, Christ was looking down the quarters of time, seeing there would be people out there preaching a gospel, preaching a message that obstructs God's love. That's what was being described here. Sees how the love of God will be concealed from the sinners, and men will make merchandise of his grace. Make merchandise. And try to get rich. Try to get gain. As he beholds the scene, indignation, authority, and power are expressed in his countenance. The attention of the people are attracted to him. The eyes of those engaged in unholy traffic are riveted upon his gaze. They cannot withdraw their gaze. They feel that the man reads their inmost thoughts and discovers their hidden motives. Some attempt to conceal their face as if the evil deeds were written upon their countenance to be scanned by those searching eyes. The confusion is hushed. The Sound of traffic and bargaining has ceased. The silence becomes painful. A sense of awe overpowers the assembly. It is, a, it is as if 
they were arraigned before the tribunal of God to answer for their deeds. Looking upon Christ, they behold divinity flash to the garb of humanity. The majesty of heaven stands as the judge will stand in the last day. And what's he doing? I just want to point this out. What's he doing? He's looking at them. He's just looking at them. He's exposing the truth. He's just looking at them. I know, but they feel it as Ah, yes, but this is what, what, what is he doing to them? He's only bringing to their own awareness by his, his, his look, by his presence, by his countenance. He's bringing to their own awareness. And where's all the discomfort? Where's all the stress coming from? From within them. Yes, notice that. The majesty of heaven stands as the judge will stand in the last day. Not now encircled with the glory that will attend him then, but with the same power to read the soul. And this is what he's doing. He's reading the soul. He's looking right through all their lies, all their distortion, all their pretense, all the external trappings. He's looking right into the heart, and they know he's looking in the heart, and they stand exposed, and they hate it. They hate it. And then he says, take these things away. Make not my father's house a house of commerce. So I'm, I'm, I'm contrasting Christ's reaction to the, to the preaching that was going on in the temple, a house of commerce, making money, self, get gain. And Paul's reaction, when Paul says, hey, even though they're out there trying to make money and get gain, praise the Lord, Christ is being praised, I rejoice in it. Why wasn't Jesus rejoicing? Why is Paul rejoicing? What do you think? Some of the most enthusiastic hearing their faith are the people who really don't know that much. They're just excited about it because something's happened to them. What was the circumstance that Paul was dealing with in his day? What was the situation, the circumstance of the of the church? Yes, was Christianity widely known and accepted at that time? Did they have an established synagogues and churches in every city? Christianity at the time Paul's writing. Would there be large groups waiting to book meeting halls for famous preachers in Paul's day? Was their religion approved and given protection by the state? Would they be risking their lives to preach Christ in some places? Did the Jewish nation have an official relationship with Rome? Yes? No? Yes. Yes, they did. Did the Jewish... um, uh, did the Jewish powers seek to bargain between themselves and Rome for power and prestige and so forth and so on? You know, who, King Herod? How did Herod become king? How did the high priest become the high priest? It was all bargained behind the scenes with Rome. Politics. Um, did the emerging Christian church at that time have any official relationship with the state? Were they bargaining for any type of power? Could the church expect state protection? No. No. And converts, was it popular in Paul's day to be Christian? To be a follower of Jesus? Was it popular? Would this make a difference in why Paul was rejoicing in Christ being preached for whatever motive and why Christ was offended by what the Jews were doing? The Jewish religion had been established for centuries And it was to be a light and a beacon to the world. And what it was doing instead was was darkening the minds of men and misrepresenting God and distorting things. Christianity, nobody had even really heard of. Jesus wasn't even known. 
And Paul is wanting the word to get out for whatever reason, so people will start asking questions and start investigating. Uh, they might hear a, 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 a snippet here, a, a preacher there, but if it intrigues them, then maybe they'll start to ask other questions and, and start investigating Jesus. What about today? What about where we are? Should we rejoice or grieve when people present Christ for selfish ambition and a way to get rich? Rejoice or grieve? Just from my perspective, I think, you know, when you see a person like that, you feel as though they're taking the name of the Lord in vain, that what they're showing about God is is greed and selfishness, not the truth. They may be saying one thing, but people look at the difference between what someone says and what someone does, and they make a judgment about that. And the judgment, if you go across the channels and you come across these people with big blue hair and things like that, lots of makeup... Does that attract you to Christianity? And yet those are often what you end up seeing on Christian channels, you know. And this is, and of course, this is the, what we are called for. He said, you know, we're to be the salt of the earth, light to the world, be my witnesses as the Father sent me, so send I you. Aren't we to actually live our lives in such a way that we do become attractive? And we do show that there's something attractive about God's methods and principles. Yeah. First paragraph says, it is highly unlikely that a person who has no personal assurance of salvation will be able to lead another into the intimate saving relationship with Jesus, although it does happen. They might be able to convince others to believe some Bible doctrines and some facts, Bible dates and charts. Such convictions and beliefs may even cause people to make a significant lifestyle changes. However, because good deeds can be performed apart from Jesus Christ, it is imperative that any witnessing and evangelistic training feature both the doctrinal and spiritual. To be true... To be a true evangelist, one must have firm grasp and experience on the everlasting gospel. It is the gospel that ultimately brings um, belief, confession, conversion, assurance, and, and discipleship. Is it our job really to lead someone into an intimate relationship with God? Is that not the job of the Holy Spirit? We are to be his spokesman about what we know, but it's the Spirit who is to lead. I, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, and I don't know that it's our our job to be judging these different ministries. We don't know the heart. We don't know who they are are reaching. And if it's true, it will continue. If it's not, we're talking about the uh, the like with suggesting for profit type things. Is that what you're referring to there? Just in general. Yeah, yeah. Of course, we don't know who's ultimately what their motives are. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We were so we weren't pointing any fingers in any direction. I hope nobody thought I was. I wasn't. I was just talking in principle. Yes, in the back. I can see what she's saying because I think sometimes when we do see things that aren't right, that, but we get thrown off track. And I think that's what we need to be praying for them and that they're seen as it is versus getting off track or being judgmental. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Are, are there people in church organization that don't have personal assurance of salvation? Are these people without assurance ever involved in evangelism? If a person without assurance of salvation is witnessing, what to what are they witnessing? Might there be a problem with a person without assurance witnessing? Might there be? What might they convert people to? If they have no peace, they have no assurance, they live in fear and anxiety, what are they converting people to? It reminds me of what Jesus said about traveling the world over to find a convert. 
And when you do, make him twice the son of hell as you are. Hmm. And in my experience in the medical side of things, doctors and nurses are the worst patients ever. You know, you can dispense information and you can, you can promote something for someone else, but then you yourself may not be following your own advice. Does that have to do with assurance or does that have to do with overconfidence? You can, well, you can Maybe the doctor and nurse is overconfident so they don't need to follow it. Maybe they have- Intellectually, you can know the truth. You can believe it. <laughs> yes. You can know what is truth, but whether you accept it or not. Apply it. And apply it to yourself. Yeah. Um, when we- and it is good news that someone is disseminating the, the good news about Christ, whether they have the total grasp of it or not. And who does? Oh, that's, there's no question. Yes, right here. Well, maybe I'm just uh, strange, but I've always, when I see these on TV, like she mentioned, I said, well, at least they're preaching Christ. (laughs) (laughs) I was glad for that, and at least they're preaching Christ. And I wasn't talking about me judging them. I'm talking about, you know, I feel the same way. At least they're saying something about God. But I'm just saying the world looking at that, they do judge. They look and see whether they think something rings true or not. So we're asking the question about assurance of salvation at the moment. About if somebody's preaching and teaching and they don't have assurance, does it affect what they preach and teach? Well, what about the whole idea of assurance of salvation in the first place? If we actually are focusing there, where's our focus? On ourselves. If you made the wrong diagnosis, you'll give the wrong treatment. Oh, I like that, yes. Even Paul worried or expressed a concern that he, after all of this doing for other people, wouldn't be saved himself. So when we focus on our own assurance of salvation, do we at any time risk taking the focus off of God and knowing him? When you're in love, that new love, you're just really in that new relationship, it's all so fun, um, what do you spend most of your time talking about? Do you talk about the other person and how amazing they are and how wonderful they are and how beautiful they are and how much fun they are and how much you can't hardly stand to be away from them? Are you, is you, are you talking about the other person or are you talking about how you finally found somebody and you're secure now and so you have somebody to help with the dishes and you can share finances and and uh, and you, you have assurance now of security? And, and uh, are you talking about your assurance or are you talking about your love? Where's your focus? Isn't it your insurance... And that relationship is subsumed under the love of that relationship. It's just, not, you don't have to talk about it. It's just, it's, it's experienced because the, the love of the relationship is so, is so strong. You don't have to talk about, I have so much peace now. I have assurance that I'm loved. Uh, it would kind of even make it less wonderful to do that, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yet there is a sense of joy that we get joy, experience um, uh, positive um, emotions when we are loved and when we are delivered. If you've ever been in dire circumstances, uh, um, fearful of rejection because of mistakes have made, uh, physically sick, and you are loved, you're accepted, you're forgiven, you're uh, restored, you're healed, isn't there a, a rejoicing that comes in that experience? Yeah. So we don't want to discount that. Um, if you were dying of cancer and then you were cured, that delivery from the disease would give you joy, generate appreciation for those who helped deliver you and healed you. 
And what would be more powerful, the promise of a cure or the experience of a cure? I want you to think about that when it comes to various theologies. Some theologies are long on promise and short on power, short on experience. The gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it about experiencing a new heart, a transformation, a new spirit, a new motive, a cleansing, a renewal, a rebuilding interior, removing of the fear and putting in the love? Isn't that what it's about? And when you begin to experience that, and hopefully you've all experienced that process beginning and starting and working in your life, does that experience of, of that changing motive, that greater sense of peace, that, that love of God in your heart, does that experience build your confidence, build your assurance as you know something is happening in you? Yeah. Well, the plan of salvation is the plan of healing, and it starts here and now. But on this question of assurance, could a person actually have assurance and not actually be saved. Can there be people who walk around with a sense of assurance? They, they have a, a sense of confidence. They, they believe, they're, but they're not. Is that possible? People said, we are Abraham's son. And Jesus turned around and said, you're the sons of your father, the devil. Oh. So, so we have to be careful what our assurance is based upon, don't we? What do you understand is the relationship between doctrinal and spiritual? The lesson mentioned, doctrinal and spiritual. What do you think the relationship between those two would be? Yes, way in the back. Just going back a little bit, Gene from Walla Walla says, when assurance of being saved is the primary concern, the focus is on self. Salvation is the result of relationship with God. In John 17.3, and that needs to be the focus. I think that's well said, absolutely. Putting the relationship, putting the focus back on Knowing God, getting to know Him. And, and self becomes less and less of a concern, doesn't it? When you're in that love relationship and you're really in love, are you really concerned with yourself or are you concerned with making the other happy, seeing a smile on the other person's face, doing something to build up the other person? Isn't that what happens in love? Yeah. So I think that's well said. Um, so what's, what do you understand spiritual and doctrinal to be? Are they, when you hear those words, what do you understand? What do you hear? Spiritual, doctrinal. Doctrinal is a set of beliefs and spiritual is a more of a relationship. Um, what is the purpose of doctrines? Rules like the law. I think well, it is then we have a doctrine you're supposed to be here at 1020, right? Is that doctrine? We have a rule. That's structure. Oh, that's not doctrine. Okay. Yes. How can you be spiritual without doctrine, without teaching? Knowing God without his revelation, that is through teaching or doctrine as we call it. This is an excellent question. Uh, Jesus said uh, that the, the, the Father is spirit and he wants worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Would that be spiritual? Hmm. Present yourself as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable service, spiritual duty. Yes, in the back. Uh, Eugene of Virginia states, doctrines are instructions that direct the relationship. It can be. I mean, if, you, if I think it's through, I'm, I'm not disagreeing, but I, if I want to put that into application, then why do I get my wife a birthday present on her birthday? 
because there's a doctrine that says that's what I'm supposed to do? No, the doctrine is more like truth. Oh, doctrine is more like truth. Okay. True doctrine is more like truth. It is your truth. What you believe to be true is the doctrine you'll accept. The doctrine itself may not be true or may be true, but it's what you perceive to be true if you embrace it. Um, let me just throw in a couple of scientific studies. One by Weber and Cummings in 2003 showed that physical abuse had a negative relationship with spiritual development but not religiosity. Meaning if you develop spiritual um, traits, if you become a spiritual, loving, caring person, you have less abuse in the home. If you are religiously structured and, and rules-oriented, there's more abuse in the home. study by um, Dyslin and Thomason in 2005 showed that um, intrinsic, extrinsic, extrinsic religiosity, meaning a structured system of rules and doctrines that you adhere to correlated with increasing child abuse in the home. Whereas intrinsic spirituality correlated with decreasing abuse in the home. So two different studies found the same outcome, that if we focus on doctrine and structure and rules, we become more imposer of rules, we get more intolerant of rule breakers, more likely to impose power over and injure and abuse if we become more focused on developing spiritual Christ-like traits of character and loving other people. We become more tolerant, more accepting, more willing to love and and not become non-abusive. Do you think that translates only in the home or does it go outside the home too? To society. To how we treat others in the community. Yes. I went quickly to the Wikipedia for a definition on doctrine. Yes. And it says it's a codification of beliefs or a body of teachings or instructions, taught principles or positions as the body of teachings and a branch of knowledge. Uh, often doctrine specifically connotes a, uh, a corpus of uh, religious dogma as is promulgated by a church. So a body, a system of beliefs, a codification of beliefs. Okay, in the back. Nella Duvall from South Africa asks, why do people nowadays say they are spiritual and not religious? Thank you for a perfect question right on cue. I mean, that was awesome. Because the next thing is, what is this trend toward spirituality away from religiosity? What is this trend? What's the impact of this trend? What do you think about that? I think that um, it, it comes from people being really rigid in their religion. But on the other hand, the spirituality sometimes can become presumptuous. And, and I think there's some kind of a balance in there somewhere. Well, you might be interested to know that in your brain, your brain has two hemispheres, left and right. The left hemisphere of your brain is analytic. It is. Um, it, it organizes, plans, strategizes, it analyzes. It's very much o- o- focused on structure, rules, um, doctrine, um, the right and the wrong of things. That's that's your left brain. Your right brain is very much relational oriented. It's focused on connecting with others, relating to others, experience a sense of community, a oneness with things around you. That's that's your right brain. Now it's interesting that the Holy Spirit is described with two primary modes, um, characteristics, the spirit of, anybody want to say? The spirit of truth and the spirit of love. Well, the spirit of truth is the spirit of the left brain. The spirit of love is the spirit of the right brain. Okay? And so there needs to be a balance here to be whole people, to be people of the spirit. We need to be spirit of people of both truth and love, doctrine and spiritual development. 
We need to be doctrinal and spiritual in a balanced way. One of Satan's strategies is to, to interfere with the work of the Spirit, and he can do that by getting people not to deal with the Spirit at all, or he can do, get, do that by getting people to have an imbalanced perception of the Spirit by being very, very truth-oriented and using truth like a club to hurt people with no love, truth with no love to hurt people. And you've seen organizations, and they're dry, they're, they're cold, they're rigid, they're legalistic organizations because they're all about the rules, all about truth, but there's no love. And then you can have that other imbalance where everything's about love and relationship, but there's no structure, there's no truth, there's no development. Do you see the imbalance on either side? The balance is in the middle. And, and, where, and where do we bring it all back together, in my view, is when you put God back in the center and, ha- and all of your doctrines must center on some truth about God. When you divorce your doctrines from some um, exposure, reflection, illumination to our minds about God, when the doctrines stand as, as dominoes, separate and distinct as entities by themselves, then we get in trouble. We have the state of the dead. We have the Sabbath. We have the, the this doctrine. We have that doctrine. The health message. And they're all just out there proof points, proof texting by themselves. No, the importance of every doctrine should, in my view, connect us in some way. What does this tell us about God? How does this help us understand his character, his nature, his methods, his principles, his universe? And when we do that, it keeps us in the relationship. And it keeps us balanced. Yes? And to verify what you're saying, in Revelation 14, 12, where it's talking about the Lamb and the 144,000 and the three angels, it says, This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints, who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. so d- that was nice. In other words, they're doctrinal and spiritual. They're truth-seeking and relational. There's a balance between both. And and I think sometimes if you read a lot of theological books and texts, you can see that sometimes it's a heavy theology focus, sometimes it's a heavy relationship focus. We need to always remain that, maintain that balance. And sometimes they're even pitted against each other. So I would suggest to you the key to maintaining the balance is always coming back and saying, what does this say about God? Put God back at the center. And, and I think it pulls us in the right direction. Sunday's lesson uh, talks about training people to witness for Christ. And I guess the question is, what training do you think would be helpful? Is it training in the truths of God's kingdom? For instance, training to help people know God's testable laws, the law of love, the law of liberty, the law of worship, the uh, training, training to know um, the origin of sin, uh, the purpose of, of the creation of man, how Satan, how Satan prosecutes his war, his methods of attack, God's methods to combat Satan, uh, the two antagonistic principles at war in the lives of everyone, the purpose of Christ's mission to earth, what, what Christ accomplished when he was here, how all this stuff translates into practical daily living and where we live each day moment to moment. God's plan for the future. I mean, when you think about training for witnessing, what, what, what do you want to be trained in? Different cultures, language, you're going somewhere else. Okay, so um, certainly we want to be able to speak the language of the people we're going to be speaking to. So that certainly could be necessary. So we can speak the language. Do we need to have something to tell them? Yeah, so what do we need to be trained in regard to the gospel to, to share people? I think that's very important because I've actually put down here next, do we need to be trained in public speaking? Do we need to be trained in how to speak the language? Do we need to be trained in PowerPoint programs? I mean, uh, what do we need to be trained in? I think she already touched on it, but you also need to be trained in not being culturally offensive 
to someone who you're going to talk to. Yes. No, that's that's very important. I, I think where you're going, different cultural... I, I understand, for instance, in the Middle East, if you should show the bottom of your shoe, sit up, put your foot across your leg, cross your leg, show the bottom of your shoe, it's an offense. It's 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 uh, The bottom of the shoe is like cursing at someone. Um, so, you know, those little cultural things, you could do it very innocently and they could be offended and, and close off. So, yes, you want to be culturally aware so that you're not ignorantly offending people. Absolutely. What training would you like so that you would feel confident and comfortable and ready to tell people about God's kingdom? Or do you already feel that you're, you've, you've gone through residency and you're ready to go out into private practice and to start your mission and your ministry? Are you guys ready or do you, you, you want some more training? And the lesson has brought up this question of training. I'm not sitting here and suggesting any way that, that anybody in this audience needs training. I'm asking you, do you, do you feel like you do? You're ready. I think what comes to mind for me is tools. Having a, a set of tools that's, um, that's ready to use and that, that I could interact with. So what tools do you want? What tools are needed? What, what, what can we do to help? Yes. When the um, twelve and the other disciples, uh, including the larger group of believers, were in the upper room in Acts two, communing and getting ready for the Holy Spirit, that's the real preparation. It led to a group of individuals who were able to, as one, listen to the Spirit and be able to hear what he was supposed to do in talking to the eunuch or someone else, you know, because when someone comes by, knowing what to say is based on what that person needs. Yeah, I hear you, Wendell, but isn't it true that the Holy Spirit came and empowered them after they graduated with their bachelor's degree? Didn't they just go through three and a half year seminary training with Jesus? But, but the group that was with them, communing, waiting for the Holy Spirit in in where they were, all of those had not been together for three and a half years. We don't necessarily know for sure how much training they got. We know that Jesus not only sent out the 12 at one point, he sent out the 70. So there was more than just the 12 that he was teaching and preparing. So I don't know the exact number. But it seems to me that there was some training that Jesus did to them before the Spirit came. But it's also true what you're saying. They weren't ready without the Spirit. The training alone was not enough. She said, wouldn't a personal relationship and experience with Christ be basic? Of course. I mean, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that's uh, what was maybe being built for those three and a half years. Yes. Eugene is saying and suggesting, be trained and reflect in the character of Christ, helping with others' needs before feeding them the truth of God's character. I like this very much. I would say that he's going down the the trail that, that I like, which is, do we need some training in how to think and see the two kingdoms that are at war on this earth? That in moment to moment, we can see the difference between the principles of God's kingdom and operation and those antagonistic motives that are, that are warring against those principles in, in the various settings we're in so that we don't get caught up inadvertently in, in supporting a, a motive, a system that's, that's really working against God's kingdom. To a large degree, that's a, a gift of discernment. 
a gift of discernment. But I know as a, as a, for instance, think as a doctor, one of the things that we're trained with is how to identify symptom lists and so forth. And then, and then, and then it's true. Some of us are better gifted at discerning the meaning of what's going on, but the education and training of what it looks like helps us with that too. In the third paragraph of Monday's lesson, it says, the principle of learning through observation is applicable to everyone. Book learning or listening to instructions must always be built upon, uh, built upon, th- th- is that supposed to be thorough? Through. Built upon through observation. Hmm. Oh well. Through observation and involvement. Jesus expected the disciples of John the Baptist to learn from what they had observed. And this, of course, goes back to how we do medical training. We do book learning for two years in medical medical school, and then we have two years of hands-on training, followed by three to five years of more hands-on training uh, in experience of the residency, internship, and residency programs. So there's lots of book learning. There's a lot of hands-on training, too, observing uh, and then doing. As you think about what they observed, think about these disciples. John the Baptist and his disciples observe. Jesus, go ask Jesus, and they're asking for verbal confirmation. They're asking for a lecture. They're asking for didactic experience. Jesus says, stay the day and watch. Observe. What did they observe? Did they observe a tribunal? Was Jesus sitting on a judgment throne and examining case after case and prosecution and declaring innocence or guilt? Is that what they observed? No. No, what did they observe? Heal the sick. Heal the sick. What else? Cast out spirits. Cast out evil spirits. What else? Preaching truth to the to the uh, downcast, the poor, uh, feeding the hungry. And so, if you, what's the common thread? You look at all these things that they observe. There's a common thread. It's a distribution, a distribution of energy, love, virtue flowing through Christ out. That's what was happening in all different forms and manifestations, but it was a distribution of healing, restorative, uh, cleansing energy flowing from Christ out. That's what they observed. Is, is that not right? Now, as you look at this, would Jesus be doing these acts, flowing energy out, giving of himself, self-sacrificing, spending his time, his resources to heal, to restore, to build up, if he was holding grudges against them? if he was unforgiving. Well, was Jesus carrying out his own purposes or was he carrying out the Father's purpose? Well, would Jesus be doing all these acts if the Father was unforgiving and holding grudges? No. This is huge to realize. Then did Jesus come with any purpose at all to influence the Father to be for us? Or to communicate how much the Father is for us. Yes. yes. I mean, this is huge. It, it really undercuts some of the ideas put forth. If you observe what Jesus is doing and who he is and what he's telling you, then you're learning things about God in action and how he works and how his methods work. What about Jesus' authority over sickness, disease, demons, and evil power? Do we learn something about that by observing? Yes, no? Yes. Did Jesus have authority over them? Yes. You guys may not know this. There's a whole a doctrinal concept out there that Jesus came to achieve or gain or get authority. That he came and he and Satan was the one who had authority on earth. And Jesus battled him in order to defeat Satan and get authority back from Satan. 
There's this doctrine out there. It's very common. It goes back to shortly after the cross. Now, there's no question he did come to defeat Satan. No question about that. But in my view, it was never for the achievement of authority. He had it. He's the son of God. Adam was only the viceroy of Christ on earth, and Satan could only take the viceroy's position. He never took the ruler's position. Christ always remained ruler. Satan usurped Adam's authority. Satan claimed to be ruler of this earth. And when he's referred to by Christ and others as being the prince of the power of this air, the the ruler of this earth, and so forth, is that meaning in some type of actual, achieved, authoritative seat of power? Or is that meaning he rules over all the evil and destruction emanates from him? This is what it's talking about. But there's this idea that Christ had to, at his cross, defeat Satan, and then he achieved authority over Satan. No, he came with authority over Satan. He had authority. Jesus was always the rightful ruler of earth. Satan had no valid claims of any kind. And there was nothing legal that had to be done in order for Christ to be the ruler of earth. Or do you think that Jesus was not the rightful ruler and he had to earn it back? Satan was the rightful ruler. So where did Satan have to be defeated by Christ? Where? In a heavenly courtroom to gain some legal verdict from his father? Now you are, now you have defeated him. You are the legal ruler. I give you the authority now. Boom. Is that what happened? In the hearts of people. In a physical confrontation where he violently fought Satan and proved that he was physically stronger? No. You're exactly right. All of you have said it. The only place that Satan had to be defeated, and I want to really make this clear because you're going to hear this doctrine. It's actually emerging in the church right now. Again, it's resurging into the church. Uh, the only place that Satan had to be defeated was in the minds of intelligent beings. When Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will, ca- uh, will draw all men to me, and now is the time for, for the ruler of this world to be cast out. Cast out from where? He's drawing all, so who's being cast out? Where's he drawing them from? From sympathy and loyalty to the enemy. He's casting Satan out of the hearts and out of the affections and out of the minds and out of the belief systems of people who value that way of doing things. This is where he's casting them out. That's the only place Satan has power. In Zechariah 3, when, when Satan is the accusing the high priest, if you remember, the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus, stands there, and you don't see a court debate. You don't see Jesus denying and alleging. You don't see Jesus declaring innocence, which I've heard recently that Jesus, when, the, when, the, when Satan accuses us, Jesus stands up and declares us innocent. No, you don't see it. What you see, what did Jesus do? Take away his sin put on the robes of righteousness. Jesus doesn't even listen to the accusations. He merely goes about fixing what's broken, healing, restoring, cleansing. When when Jesus came to raise the body of Moses, raise Moses from the dead, and the devil's there to argue with him, did Jesus engage in a debate? Did he listen to the arguments? Lord rebuke you, talk to the hand. I mean, Satan's allegations against us carry no weight anywhere except in your mind. Understand, when the accuser of the brethren, accuser of the brethren, accuses, where do those accusations have power? In the brethren. They'll have power in you, if you're the one who's done wrong, to cause you to feel inadequate, scared, insecure, inferior, unworthy, that you're too bad to ever be saved, and they'll have traction in the hearts and minds of your brothers and sisters, who will then want to take you out and stone you. But they have no traction in heaven. 
the Lord doesn't care about his allegations. The Lord cares about your heart and mind. What is the condition of your heart and mind? When, when, when Satan alleges and brings up allegations, David is an adulterer and he's a murderer. The Lord doesn't care about those allegations. The Lord looks in and says, David has a new heart and a right spirit. He's been changed in the inner man. He's been renewed and cleansed and healed. He's not sick anymore. I don't care about the symptoms of sickness when he was far from me. He's been healed now and he can come home. This idea, this idea that's making traction is undermining, in my view, our ability to have confidence in, in God. Yes? Um, last Sabbath, my sister and her husband, and um, we were having the same conversation about this, and they said it's the onlooking universe that cares about the allegations. So what would you say about that? Yeah, I would say that's because they're, whoever's giving you that view don't really understand yet a couple of things. One, God's law as the principle upon which life is constructed to operate, and the nature and character of sin, which is being out of harmony with that law. So if we give an analogy, God's law, the way he built things to run, respiration, law of respiration, sin being out of harmony with that, put a plastic bag over your head. Now, you're out there, you've got a plastic bag over your head, you're not dead yet, but you're starting to turn blue. Okay? Do we need to go into court and have a courtroom investigation to determine whether you're in harmony or out of harmony with that law. Well, we don't know. We, we, we don't know whether she's breaking the law. Do, what, really? What, what, what is actually going to happen? Think it through with me. From what your own knowledge of Scripture, what is actually going to happen? From what we read earlier today about Jesus when a little divinity flashed through in the, in the temple, what is going to happen to those whose hearts and minds are not restored, who are continuing to live out of harmony with God's design when they come into the presence of unveiled truth and love? What's going to happen to them? Will they be at peace? Will they be happy? Will they be filled with joy? Will they be suffering and agonizing? Will they be running? Will they be begging for mountains to fall on them? Now, do we have to have a courtroom to figure out that, or is it going to be self-evident? It's self-evident. The universe does not need this. Okay? What the universe needs is the same thing we need, and that is the revelation of God's character. They need to see Satan exposed as a liar and fraud, and they need to see that God is always true, always loving, always reliable, always steady, never changing. His methods always work. He's completely trustworthy. They need to have trust in God restored. Regarding you and me, this idea, well, they, they're worried about whether we'll make safe neighbors. No, they're not. Because they know that anybody who's not safe to be in God's presence will, will not be in God's presence. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God veiled himself. That's why they were cold suddenly, and, and, and they needed clothes. Why? Because God's presence was withdrawn. Why was his presence withdrawn? Because they would have been destroyed if he would have had the full exposure of his life-giving glory still. They, they couldn't have tolerated the guilt and the agony of their own, of their own condition in his presence. So, no, I, I, don't, I don't... That's a great question. Thanks for asking it. Yes? For the rest of the universe, wasn't that... And the question settled at the cross for them. The question of God's trustworthiness, I believe, was settled at the cross. The full revelation of his methods and principles, however, were not. That full revelation of the power of his methods and principles and the, and the plan of his restorative plan hasn't been settled. It's settled in the lives of people. Remember we talked before, Christ reveals what perfection in humanity looks like. You and I reveal what sickness restored and healed looks like. 
You see, we don't see sickness and character in Jesus Christ healed, restored to, to loveliness because Christ was always lovely. We see in us the sickness of sin character rebuilt, reconstructed, and healed, restored, renewal of the heart. So God's methods show something to the angelic host and looking at the universe of our healing and restoration. And that gives further glory to God. But I don't think it has anything to do with them being afraid that we're going to make bad neighbors. I really don't. What do we learn by observing Christ? To actually go out and teach the truth in love, to heal, to feed, to set minds free. Don't waste time over arguing about whether you have authority to do it or not. Just do it. Just love people. They're saying just do it. Yeah, just love people. Tuesday's lesson. No matter how many books people read about their favorite sport, no matter how many games are watched, if they want to be a player, they have to put the boots on and get out on the field. We call it hands-on experience, learning by doing. With And without it, a person is simply not equipped for the task. The universal truth even applies to the Christians witnessing and evangelism. Sometimes we hear people say that they don't want to get involved because they are not completely ready. They must understand that active participation is a vital part of becoming ready. This is also true of, of any training and experience. Medical school, was there a time you had to do a procedure and you were nervous? <laughs> like, I've never drawn blood before. Okay? Yes. And uh, don't we, are we grateful for those courageous patients who let those medical students do that? <laughs> okay? Yes. We also learn by failure. If you go up to somebody and you say something that's offensive or something like that. Pause on that thought. Let me say one comment because next lesson is learned by failure. Okay, good. Okay? So one thought, and that is simply about this idea of, of doing things in experience. Ideas become behaviors. Behaviors reinforce the ideas. Neural circuits change. Repeated behaviors become habits. Neural circuits become further established and reinforced, and we are slowly changed and transformed. This is why it has to go more than thought, more than belief. It has to be put into action in order for there to be true transformation. Okay, tell me about failures. Well, a lot that I've learned has been through failure. In the sense of, you know, you go up to somebody, you say something that might be offensive, or, um, you know, I like Margaret um, Feinberg um, is an author, and one thing that she said is um, she was a Christian, and she had Jewish background, and she had a friend, they were very close, you know, because she was Jewish, and the girl finally asked her, she says, are you, you know, are you more concerned about me becoming a Christian than us being friends, and they lost the friendship. And I think, and that really marked a lot, the way she does her ministry now, and I think that that is... We can learn from those things. I think we don't want to, but I think that's just part of it. I think that's well said, absolutely. And the lesson title for Wednesday is Learned by Failure. And I have a couple of quotations here from Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison, and here's a couple of quotations. It says, I am not discouraged because every wrong attempt, dis- because every wrong attempt discarded is another step forward. Or, I have not failed, I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. <laughs> uh, or, Many of life's failures are men who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Or, nearly every man who develops an idea works at it up to the point where it looks impossible and then gets discouraged. That's not the place to become discouraged. These are great, great quotes. And then this last one, show me a thoroughly satisfied man and I will show you a failure. Yes. And what does that last quote remind you of? Before we get to the question in the back. It reminds me of the church of Laodicea. A fully satisfied church, full and well-fed and rich in goods. In need of nothing. Fully satisfied church. 
is a failure. Yes, in the back. Jean from Washington says she agrees that active participation is necessary, but what is that active participation? I believe rather than simply passing out tracts or defending doctrines, it is actively loving as Christ's love that is the most powerful witness. And Nella Duvall says we are his witness wherever we are. I, I think these are well-said statements, and, and, and each one of us in our own community, our families, our, our, our social network, um, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking all the time, how can we become more effective? How can we become more effective? How can we take the ministry? You notice the early church did a lot of communal living. How many of y'all up for that? Let's get a commune. <laughs> Nobody's jumping on that. You know? But there was something to that. Because everybody supported everyone. Everybody was concerned with everyone. Somebody was sick. We helped everybody else out. There's something simple about that. All possessions were, you know, it, it doesn't work. Why, why does communal living always fail? Because you eventually enter somebody into the commune who actually hasn't had their heart renewed. If everybody's heart is like Christ, communal living will work wonderfully. But as soon as you get people who are unchristlike, then the politics and the greed and the power over and the manipulation and me first starts. And the commune will eventually fracture and somebody will end up being a cult leader and we'll all drink the Kool-Aid. Okay? <laughs> yes, Wendell. We, we talked about the, the story of, of John's disciples coming to Christ and asking whether he was the one or not. In, in that story, what we don't really realize or think about sometimes is that John was failing at, in his faith. And yet Christ did nothing to condemn John in his failure of faith. He actually continued to live and preach and minister that whole day as any other day. He, he gave the, the disciples a synopsis of what he did, just so it would be very clear. And then he commended John for what he did right. So John was having a discouraged time. I would point out, you, you know, use, use a very strong word, failure. I would, I would say he was being tempted. Well, uh, he was discouraged. It's how we perceive ourselves when we have less faith. But look what he did with his discouragement. This is what I'm going to point out. Look what he did. He could not go personally. But where he went is he went to Christ with his discouragement. I'm discouraged. Are you really the one? Help me. And what did Christ provide him? He provided him evidence. So I think you're right. He was having that, that crisis of faith. But I like what he did with it. And, and, he not, and Christ not only demonstrated without having to change anything, but he also gave a synopsis in words that were familiar to John from the writings of the Old Testament saying, Yes, I'm doing this, but here's a synopsis in the words actually that were quotes from the Old Testament. Yes. He was fulfilling it. Nice. Absolutely. We're, we're about out of time, so I've got to wind it down. I, I, I didn't get to the rest of the lesson, and I was going to talk about some of the suggestions where they talk about goal setting in the lesson and about one of the goal settings to measure success of your evangelistic uh, outreach and ministry was they had uh, baptismal goals. And I was going to explore that with you, and I was wondering if Peter had set a 3,000 baptismal goal for the day of Pentecost. And uh, maybe, you know, he undershot the mark or overshot the mark. I don't know. But it, 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 and yeah, go home and reflect. Are baptismal goals uh, really the, the, the best measure of, of ministry? I mean, you know, Elijah didn't get very many baptisms that I know of. 
Um, Moses at, at Pharaoh's court was, was evangelizing, wasn't getting a lot of success there. Uh, Stephen, when he preached, really didn't get a lot of baptisms. Uh, must not have been very successful in his preaching. I mean, I'm just suggesting that maybe baptisms isn't really the, 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 the end-all, be-all. And in fact, in closing, let me say this. If we are to be the salt of the earth, we are to be the lights to the world, does it make sense to you that the Holy Spirit would want to have people that are true and loyal to him in as many places of the world as he possibly can? Does that make sense to you? Would that include he would want people that are actually true to him in other denominations? Then why are we trying to make everybody into one denomination? Instead of everybody come to a knowledge and relationship of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of love. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you have done in presenting us the truth, for what Jesus has done in coming to bring us the knowledge of you, for what he has done to overthrow the power of of the devil by bringing truth and establishing love back in the human heart. We pray now that your spirit will come and take all that Christ has achieved in our behalf and reproduce it in us to renew us, to be like you, and make us effective in loving people, not in just words, but in action and deed. We pray in your holy name. Amen.